0: A lot of questions that we answer on our podcast, Julie, here on Your Doctor Friends, are focused on a problem. If you think back to episodes, things like, What should I do if I'm nauseous? Or, Did I tear my meniscus? Or, Do I have a kidney stone? But in reality, I think the holy grail has got to be in all of healthcare to say, Can I actually prevent a problem? Take all those questions we just said Can I prevent myself from being nauseous? Can I prevent a meniscus tear? Can I prevent a kidney stone? And I think and you can tell me if you agree with this. I feel like it just doesn't get nearly enough of attention. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, because I mean the jokes that has been made before is prevention isn't sexy. Although, I would say after today's uh, episode is over, I think we're going to think differently about that. But, yeah, it's it's hard because the 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 lack of a bad outcome it's hard to grasp that as a human being of, like, yeah, we we don't like when a bad thing happens, but when the bad thing, we're not aware of it ever even, like, happening to us, it's, it's just life. You just move on. You don't even think about it, you it, know? It doesn't yeah, it's variety. hard to
0: measure a prevented thing because it never happened in the first place. Right. So, yeah, it's not sexy and it doesn't <laughs> yes. pay as well. So, listen... <laughs> We all go to our annual physicals, at least we probably all should go to our annual physicals. That physical exists for a reason. We click on headlines that suggest there is a secret that we didn't know that could make us all feel better and live longer and perform better. We read nutrition labels, probably too closely. We take vitamins, we take supplements, we consult with nutritionists, we hire personal trainers. Universally, we all want to live long, healthy lives. But healthcare really doesn't encourage prevention, Insurance generally doesn't cover preventative services. Healthcare companies don't really invest in preventative care. It doesn't really pay well when you've created something and then people don't get the problem that that thing was created for in the first place. Similarly, diagnostic testing, which is basically the backbone of identifying, frankly, anything, remains underfunded and under-researched. So it really begs the question, can we actually prevent disease? So in your doctor friend's flavor... We are going to have some of our friends on to answer the question, can we prevent disease? And I think they're going to argue, yes. More specifically, I think they're going to argue that we can prevent cardiac disease, the leading cause of death in the United States. And even further, I think they will argue we can do it within the confines of the current healthcare system. So we're excited to have you join us today. Join our little doctor friends hangout with our friends to answer the question, can I prevent heart disease?
1: Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name is Julie Bruni.
0: And I'm Jeremy Allen, And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help.
1: We want to be your doctor friends.
0: Welcome back. Today is unique. Not just because we have an amazing question that we're going to dive into, but because today we are bringing on two doctor friends to join our party. What do you think, Julie?
1: I'm so excited. This is a great yes, party.
0: Yes, the more the merrier in this situation. Let me introduce doctors Max Fitzgerald and Danny Luger, who are physicians at Rush University Medical Center and the co-directors of the Center for Prevention of Cardiac Disease. Max is a physiatrist, also known as Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He's a specialist in musculoskeletal medicine and rehabilitation. Danny is a cardiologist. He takes care of hearts. They are both exceptional clinicians, incredibly accomplished individually, and together they saw a hole in the medical system, and we are super jacked to have them here on the show to talk about it. Max and Danny, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Is this Dr. Danny Luger, who is the Rush Oak Park Hospital treasurer?
2: That's right. I actually, <laughs> I have my own parking spot, I'll have you know. And actually, I know the person that occupied that parking spot before me was Max Fitzgerald. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this
1: is so sweet and well, lovely. G- Julie,
0: you didn't ask Max if the, I think Max like runs the ship to a certain extent. I think <laughs> right. I think he's yes. the pilot of the hospital. Is that accurate, Max? All right, He does, he does it. His ego's not
2: going to fit onto this, <laughs> this podcast. <laughs>
0: Well, that's why I moved my camera up so that my head is still
3: as much of the same as possible.
0: That's good. We're going to get nowhere on this show, which is great. OK, mm-hmm. so let, let's let start with the story of, of the preventative clinic, this, this thing that you guys have um, been working on. It, it, it has been published well by Rush, and we're really interested to learn more. It's not a model done many places and certainly not generally encouraged with our fee-for-service insurance model. Talk to us about who had the idea, where did it start, kind of go back to the beginning. What's really cool about
3: this partnership is that it was kind of an organic development. So, you know, Danny and I have known each other for a long, long time since we were five years old. Um, And we've, you know, grew up together in the same town, went to high school together, went to college together. After his fellowship, he came out to Oak Park and suddenly I saw a bunch of referrals coming to me from Danny and He approached me and was like, hey, look, I've got all these patients who I've got this goal to get them healthier. And if only they could be exercising more or be a little bit more active, I think they do a lot better. And so, you know, I'll let Danny talk about this, but this is really his brainchild. And he approached me about how could we make this operational? And that's, you know, I I really give him a ton of credit for originating this idea um, and figuring out a way to make what we do well individually work together for our patients. And I, it's it's a true testament to what health care should be, because this is a clinic that focuses on health. It's not about reactionary medicine. It's not about uh, here's your problem, here's how to fix it. It's we want you to be healthy. And I think really that's why we became doctors, right? You know, A lot of us in our personal statements applying to medical school say, I want to help people. I will tell you this clinic in the last couple of years has been one of the few places where I actually feel that consistently when I go to the clinic and patients walk out and I feel like we are helping them um, in their healthcare journey and I really, I'm really, i really proud of
2: that. And I would love to take credit for having, you know, the aspirations of fixing our healthcare system and really providing care for all that are in need, but it was really emerged out of the uh, desire to just hang out with Max in clinic. No, so... the bromance is real. How can we how can we figure this out? No, but I mean, really I was I, I, we see a lot of people in cardiology for chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations. We have a lot of great diagnostic testing that can definitively rule in or rule out pathology. And I found that a lot of people that come to my practice actually don't have frank cardiovascular disease. They have a smattering of risk factors like obesity, sedentary behavior. Um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and so once we get the acute issue kind of resolved, or we say, all right, you know, you're not having a heart attack, then what are you left with? A lot of cardiologists will, you know, say, go go back to your primary care doctor. But there's a lot to be done in the way of risk factor modification that primary care doctors are perfectly capable of managing, but just don't have the time to. So, and I like doing that stuff. I like getting to know people. I like, you know, kind of digging into their lifestyle and their risk factors, and so as max was saying i just ended up referring a ton of people that have that are typically have the constellation of obesity sedentary behavior and musculoskeletal comorbidities so knee pain back pain and ended up just referring a ton of people to him i said why don't we just you know hang our shingle together and open up a clinic and see what we can come up with and we kind of it, it happened pretty organically and as we you know started seeing patients we kind of found our clinical style and figured out ways that like both of our expertise can combine really nicely to, to put together a very comprehensive prevention plan. So I think many people will understand the concept of, if I
0: have something going on, I'm going to call a doctor and I'm going to go see them. So in the cases that you talked about, Danny, maybe somebody's got chest pain or they're having, you know, like palpitations, they're going to go see a cardiologist. Max, in your case, somebody's having back pain or knee pain and they're going to call and they're going to go see you how does somebody decide I want to see the preventative cardiac clinic?
2: I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And I think the answer is that almost everybody could benefit in some way from at least getting established with us, uh, you know, in the short term basis. And we can, you know, we, Oftentimes we find people, we do a full risk stratification, we check their labs, we do a musculoskeletal survey, and we tell them, you know, you're doing a great job and encourage them and, and they can come back and see us in a year just to check in and have a space to be accountable for their wellness and health. And But really, the you know, the primary target is patients that are overweight and sedentary because along with, you know, being overweight and sedentary comes all these other risk factors that are either undiagnosed or on the precipice of emerging. Maybe you could drill down a little bit and then Max could go next, maybe drill
0: down a little bit on what you actually are checking. Like so if somebody comes in and you said you just you do a
2: comprehensive check on them and check yeah. their labs like what what are what are you specifically looking for? So I mean the first thing that I ask patients when they walk in is what are your goals for your own health? So trying to get an idea of what, where are people coming from in their own lives? What do they want? A lot of, I get a lot of interesting answers to that. Like, you know, I want to lose weight, to I want to be around for my grandkids, to, you know, like, I just want to feel good. Um, and that kind of just has like a starting point because we have our own ideas, like, you know, get your blood pressure under control, get your cholesterol under control. But most people don't give a shit about that. They just want to be around for, you know, their daughter's, you know, wedding. And so that's the first question we ask. And then we go very detailed step-by-step what they do for, in their day. So, and again, like you said in the intro, this is not sexy, um, but it's actually kind of fun because you hear all these quirky things about people's rhythms and routines. But we say, you know, what time do you go to sleep? When do you wake up? What's the first thing you do when you wake up? And go through their daily rhythm. And so we get a sense for what their risk factors are in terms of their lifestyle and points that we can intervene on, particularly you know, a lot of behavior change has to be anchored to whatever habits are already in their routine. So we try to learn the routine and then, you know, kind of tailor our our, inter- our behavioral interventions to what they're already doing. And then we go through kind of the medical stuff. Starts with a mental health screening, sleep quality screening, and then, then the lab work, which is checking for uncontrolled uh, hyperlipidemia, checking for coronary calcification with a CT scan of the heart, um, obviously checking their blood pressure and blood sugar levels. So all these kind of like pillars of cardiovascular prevention, we go through stepwise, but only after we've come to understand how they kind of function in their day and what's important to them. And then when
0: they see you and do all that and then head on over to like, are you and Max in the room at different times?
2: Yeah, I, I step out of the room and then Max just comes trouncing in with his like booming voice and I, just takes over. And a over big cake
0: yeah, exactly. Max, can you tell us when you go in the room, what are you doing? Like what are you assessing and looking for? What you find
3: really quickly is how many ways you can ask a question to get different answers. And so Danny asks a lot about, you know, rhythms and daily habits. So, you know, I, I sort of make it redundant, but I try to frame it in a different way to figure out, okay, so tell me about what you're eating. What's your daily you know, diet plan look like? What do you do for activity? What's your exercise history? What do you do for work? Um, What sort of support system do you have? Do you drive? Like trying to get a real sense of what does this person's day consist of? And the the thing that we find more than I think I expected going into it is how many people come to our clinic with just an unbelievable amount of caregiver stress and work stress that the, the reality is that they know that they can be healthier and they know what they want to do, but they just don't have any time or they don't perceive themselves as having time. And it's it's really profound how disconnected the, you know, CDC and AHA recommendations for physical activity are with people's realities. And, you know, primary care doctors are really good at giving recommendations and giving guidelines. And this isn't a knock, it's just they're really good at giving them, but not implementation strategies. And so really more than anything, I'm just trying to figure out what makes this person tick because if I can figure out what matters to them and what their real daily capacity is, then you can actually tailor a plan. And I think what Danny and I pride ourselves on most is really how personalized we get. And I mean, it is incredibly detail-oriented on the person that's sitting across from us. It's not a patient, it's a human being, right? That's the thing that matters to us. So I think, for me, that's what I'm doing from a, an assessment and then from a physical assessment, it's like, yeah, so what are your barriers to activity? Like, do you have pain? Do you have neurologic deficits that make exercise difficult or unsafe, balance impairment? Um, you know, those, those types of things. And then like, what access to equipment or uh, exercise modalities would you have? So, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis for me on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, really at the end of the day, it's getting to know this person. It's, we, we value the fact that each of us gets 40 minutes mm-hmm. with them to get into the weeds and really figure out what are we going to do to slowly incorporate behavioral and lifestyle modification to affect someone's health.
1: So to put you on the spot, can we really prevent heart disease? So how much of this is genetics? What about, you know, like we can talk about like social determinants of health. I know that there's a lot of talk about changing your lifestyle to, you know, uh, to be exercising more and to choose um, maybe more nourishing things to put in your body and reducing stress and making time for yourself. But um, what about the stuff that we maybe can't totally control?
2: Yeah, so the AHA released like kind of like a prevention statement and based on the review of the literature about 80% of cardiovascular disease is preventable. So when you're talking about by 2030, where our country is going to spend $1 trillion annually on cardiovascular disease, you can prevent about 80% of that. And that's what's, that's what it makes us, gets us excited about the work we're doing, but also is incredibly frustrating in, in that our system, like you had alluded to, is not totally built to to do this. And this is what will save our healthcare system. This is what will save lives. And so, you know, beyond our clinic, we're making a push and rush to develop this kind of interdisciplinary group called the Metabolic Health Consortium, which is basically physicians from all different disciplines that, that are dipping a toe in prevention. There are a lot of people like Max and I who are um, doing similar things, but in in silos throughout the system. So talking about bariatric surgeons and weight loss and endocrinologists and sleep medicine specialists and lifestyle specialists. And so we're all getting together a a couple times a year and trying to build up a more interdisciplinary collaborative effort across the system to implement these prevention strategies. But that was an extremely long winded answer to the question of like is is this preventable it's extremely preventable and our technology now you know with advanced biomarkers as well as imaging modalities we can do a ct scan which is the same radiation as a mammogram and detect the littlest fleck of calcium in your arteries which says that you have atherosclerosis or plaque buildup that could be identified in young people in their 30s and 40s and that process can be halted in its tracks it takes 20 or 30 years for that to manifest as a cardiac event like a heart attack or a stroke but we can halt it in its in its tracks and truly prevent you know clinically significant cardiovascular disease that's really
0: good so how like you find that calcium plaque in that person like so how how are you stopping
2: that so really i mean the the whole cardiovascular disease is the process of atherosclerosis. So plaque buildup in the arteries and plaque basically is the fat content that's circulating in your bloodstream that then goes into the walls of the arteries. And there it's a complex process that's driven by all the risk factors that Max and I kind of alluded to and what what we try to address. So it's obviously getting your cholesterol down. So the primary treatment for, for prevention is starting some form of a cholesterol lowering medication. Most first line agent is a statin, which a lot of people have, you know, a lot of fake news out there about statins, but they do not just lower the cholesterol, but they actually suck the fatty content out of the plaque in the wall and stabilize the shell of the plaque. So the plaque doesn't grow. It also is less likely to rupture and cause an event. So the statins themselves truly stabilize whatever plaque buildup is already there. And then what, what perpetuates the process of ather- atherosclerosis are a multitude of factors. So any toxin exposure, high circulating sugar levels, uh, high blood pressure, that all puts stress on the walls of the arteries and allows the cholesterol to deposit. So we are removing the cholesterol and also removing other insulting agents that leave the blood vessel more penetrable to the circulating cholesterol.
0: One of the things you talked about, Max, was the, the stress that you, found patients having like with work stress and, and, and caretaker stress. Um, can you comment on, you know, what you kind of counsel people when you find that stress? Cause I would imagine that also plays a role in people's cardiac health.
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, elevated cortisol levels are highly associated with elevated blood pressure and it's not just what would be clinically significant for hypertension. It's, um, these fluctuating levels of blood pressure, which, as Danny said, stress the intima of the arteries, the walls of the arteries in different ways. And one of the biggest things on counseling is not to say, don't be stressed. Like, that's not good advice, right? What I am going to say is, what are your avenues to find, you know, a little balance from your stress? What do you do to escape your stress? What are those elements that bring you a little bit of relief to balance that out? And ideally, we would encourage them to find that in the form of exercise, now people are like, I'm not gonna run. I'm not, I don't run. I'm not telling you to run. <laughs> Our goal is to help them find active interventions because then it becomes part of their life, part of their routine. And and to
2: piggyback on that, you know, we have partnerships with multiple um, teams within Rush that, um, that help support mental health. So there's a caregiver intervention program through Rush. A lot of people don't know about all these resources within the system, but th- these are social workers that you just send them a referral and they call the patient and, and help them navigate, you know, what you know what kind of resources are available to them, help them help support them emotionally. We also have a psychologist um, who has set up a specific behavioral intervention group and like kind of support group for people that are in our clinic. So it's specifically designed for prevention of cardiovascular disease, but more like a, but a kind of like emotional support space as well as informative about cardiovascular disease. So you know we really try to use the resources and the expert like all these experts that are at rush to address these these issues it's like like max is saying like people come in you can you can give them a pill you can give them this but like you have to get to the root cause of why they're not making behavioral changes and oftentimes that's due to underlying mental health issues and uh, you know it's a lot of <clears throat> People may know from personal experience or you know, from being healthcare providers, there is just an absolute paucity of, of mental health providers in our system. So you try to send a referral to a psychologist, it, it's, there's not even a wait list, it's like over a year. So I do a lot of prescribing, diagnosing of depression and prescribing of antidepressants for people that are good candidates for that. And we see a huge shift. So the first visit, they'll say, you know, I'm so depressed, I've just lost my husband. And, you know, having trouble finding a job and I've been having, I've had depression my whole life. And so, okay, let's, why don't we treat your depression? Next time you come back, we'll talk about increasing your physical activity once you get to kind of the root cause of why you're inactive, why you're eating emotionally. And I'm glad you asked the question of mental health because that's really, it's a huge it's a huge crisis in our country and really is like the backbone of why people seek, the, seek a doctor. Like people, particularly in cardiology, like, you know, they're coming in with somatic symptoms. So shortness of breath, chest pain, those are all, a lot of them are anxiety driven or stress driven. And so instead of just saying, all right, your stress test looks normal and see you later, we say, all right, well, like, talk to me about what's going on in your life and let's actually treat this so that we can turn things around for you.
0: I feel like society really, um, at least our society these days, really kind of glamorizes being stressed. I I think, you know, it doesn't take four current doctors who went through med school and residencies to, like, remember the times where you're like, oh, I've just been studying so hard or working so hard. Can you comment a little bit on how just being stressed affects cardiac health?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, as Max said, like the cortisol level spikes blood pressure, but there are a lot of different mechanisms, both direct and indirect on the cardiovascular system that depression leads to cardiac events. So indirectly, you know, people that are suffering from depression, isolation, loneliness, anxiety are more likely to engage in unhealthy behaviors and that doesn't take a whole lot of, it's very intuitive. Um, So there's a higher incidence of obesity and sedentary behavior and substance use in people that have uncontrolled mental health. And those clearly lead to cardiovascular disease. But then there's also direct effects um, of depression and stress on the blood vessels themselves. So I was talking about the different pathways uh, that contribute to atherosclerosis. So depression has, has associations with systemic inflammation and inflammation is a huge part of the development of plaque in the artery walls. And so that kind of drives and fuels the plaque buildup. Depression also has been, and these mechanisms aren't well studied and well understood, but depression can also lead to stickiness of your platelets. So, and that may be related to serotonin levels. And so that can make you more prone to having atherosclerotic complications and blood clots. Um, and then then as, as Max was saying also just like just increase in your blood pressure, increase in your sympathetic drive is also bad for the heart. One of our primary medications for cardioprotective effect is a beta blocker, which is basically blocking the adrenaline and blocking that sympathetic surge from, from impacting the heart. So those are all things that that drive cardiovascular disease in depression. And there's this study out of Copenhagen that they looked at like, all the various risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, inactivity, and they found that the highest quartile of what they call um, vital exhaustion, which is depression, loneliness, like a composite score of all the bad shit in your life, um, the highest score has the most is the most predictive of bad cardiovascular outcomes compared to smoking. So if you're the most depressed, it's worse than being depressed is worse than smoking, having high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And that's just not something that's that's talked about enough and definitely not something that's addressed in our training, in and in our practice. We the cardiologists wanna just, you know, put in stents and like, you know, put in pacemakers and that's that's the sexy stuff you were talking about. And for me I just wanna, you know, sit and cry with my patients.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, I
2: cry a lot. So what?
3: <laughs> just he That's does cry a lot. It's very, very unnerving. <laughs> clinic,
1: but we let That's why Max is the
0: closer. You got to let people be people.
1: <laughs> why do you think care models like this are not more common? Why don't you think primary care docs can do this or want to do this? Or what What do you, why, do you, why is this, why is your clinic so unique?
3: One of the the things that modern medicine has really suffered from is the monetization of time. So when you think about your own practice, right? It's, and, and most healthcare practices, it's, we're judged on productivity. So how many people can you see? How much billing can you do? Fee for service drove this. And so most healthcare models, that's what they base their their compensation on. And Danny and I aren't immune from that, right? That's not something that is different than where what we practice, but primary care is is hit especially hard by that model because you have to have access, right? Everyone needs a primary care doctor. That's the recommendation at least. So you have to be able to produce spots for people to get seen. And we have a shortage of primary care providers, physicians, APPs, whatever. There's just not as many as we need in this country. And so, you know, basically get as many people in as possible is, is the model most healthcare systems employ, and and you get 20 minutes with them or 40 minutes with them. And that's about it. And during that time, they have to address everything, right? They have to address every topic and on their, on the patient's list. So instead of adhering to that model, Danny and I have said, look, we're going to spend a lot of time with you. We're going to do our best to um, enhance your health but we're gonna do it at the expense of not seeing as many people. And, you know, we're, we're, we feel very fortunate that we work in a place that allows us to do this. Now, don't take us wrong, we're, we're busy, right? I mean, it's hard to get in and we have a, a, a waiting list. I mean, people wanna get into this space, but we're lucky in the sense that our our programs are supported by the institution and they say, okay, it's not only about how much money you bring in, it's also about the service you provide to the community. And until healthcare systems and CMS, you know, the Center for Medicare Mm -hmm. and Medicaid Services, recognize what value means, which is not just how much money you didn't spend on that stent or how much money you didn't spend on an intervention, it's not gonna change because fee-for-service is king, right? 97% of claims for the most part are paid for out of fee-for-service models. So even with all the talk about ACOs, and shared savings programs that's such a small portion of how healthcare is compensated that it, it, this model is, is is unique because we are saying that we truly value prevention i would argue
0: also i don't want to pay 50 dollar copay to go see a doctor when i don't have a problem so the access of a patient wanting to go and actually get the advice from somebody too so good points i still can't get over the fact that you guys both get 40 minutes with a patient i'm i'm I, I don't know how you can make that sustainable and I I wish we I, I I want to make it more sustainable. How do you make it sustainable? How does Rush support that? Don't answer for Rush, but answer for yourself.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there since I started practicing a couple of years ago, they they implemented, you know, time-based billing, so that is helpful for us. I mean, that's and that we can get compensated for our time. But also, you know, there is, you know, cardiology is generally a sexy field and that it has, you know, we have to play by the rules that exist, which is not, which is not great, but it means that if we're sending people for, you know, stress tests when appropriate, when we're sending people for coronary calcium scores and identifying severe disease, that leads to downstream, you know, interventions. The whole, our whole operation is paid for by the cardiovascular surgeon that replaces a valve or a a cardiologist who puts in a stent for a, a somebody with a heart attack. So that's how this can exist in a program that, you know, that brings in cash in other places. But like Max is saying, until we move away from fee for service and are and shift more towards value-based care, the, this isn't a sustainable model. But I think, you know, and as Max was also saying, that, like, that Rush supports this because they understand that this is the landscape. We should have the infrastructure at Rush to be the leaders in value-based care when it does arrive, whenever it arrives. And that's what we're working on both in this clinic but also with multiple providers across the Rush system. And everybody who kind of works in the space of prevention is you know, beating the drum of value-based care but also like not particularly optimistic it's coming anytime soon. But still, we should be the best, you know, in Chicago at the very least of you know having this infrastructure in place. That when it does arrive, that we will knock it out of the park.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting to be kind of at least in in this system, kind of the flagship of of this model. Do you are you guys aware of other clinic based or other models like this outside of Rush or outside of Chicago? Like, do you collaborate with any other, or are you aware of like other systems that? Behave this way, and maybe have been, you know, you can take some pages out of their book. Yeah, I
2: mean, there are a lot of different major academic institutions that have mm-hmm. prevention centers. I mean, Johns Hopkins is really the gold standard for cardiovascular prevention, but the way that it's funded is not through, you know, the patients that are walking into the clinic. It's funded by research dollars and by, you know, grants and don- you know, donor money. So it's not they're they're not doing it, you know. You know, by by playing by the regular rules, and I I trained at mm-hmm. Mount Sinai, and worked with a really interesting endocrinologist who was doing cardiovascular prevention, and he, you know, he told me like this is this is totally paid for just by like you know a donation, like this is this doesn't, this doesn't work, this isn't a real sustainable model, so it's 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 discouraging in some ways in that it, it it's our system is 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 working against us and against patient mm-hmm. care. Like when you, when it comes down to it, it's that it, the hospitals make money when people get sick. So why would we, and get sick in the right ways, but why would we, why would we prevent that if it's paying the pills? So it's a perverse system. And until people are profiting off of, you know, it's not like Rush is profiting off of it, but it's until there's no, there are, you know, people aren't making money off of of people being sick until there's like yeah. universal I think it's a, it has to be universal health care that that's going into a much broader discussion but sure. that, that's what I think is required for us to really shift our system
1: well I think it's great that you guys are showing that it can work and and trying different ways of funding it to make it work because if no one does then we just will keep doing this until everything implodes and then we were going to keep see still seeing the same stress and all these different social determinants of health and like the fact that it's so hard for people to be able to do anything other than work maybe more than one job and then take care of people but i think it's really great to see you being a model for this. I think it's wonderful.
0: I want to push you on this for a second, Danny and and Max, about like, how are you guys being measured? How are you measuring your outcomes? How do you know if you're making a difference? So I I think one of the
3: most important things that we we are doing is, you know, kind of Danny alluded to and what he does when he walks in the room is we're getting a biometric assessment, right? So what is your weight? What is your BMI? What is your A1C? What is your blood pressure? What is your PHQ-9, whatever, you know, we're getting these objective data points, and these are all significant risk factors for heart disease. And if we can establish a current baseline, whatever the interventions that we deem appropriate for each individual person that comes into the clinic, we can then measure those biometric. These are objective data points, right? So if your A1C drops a point, that's a significant reduction in your risk of heart disease. If you stop smoking, a significant reduction in your heart disease. So we are hoping that we won't see this for decades, but all we can tell you is in the short term, you've optimized every risk factor that you have that would lead to the development of heart disease. And so, you know, you have a coronary um, calcium score. You can repeat that in, in five years to see if it's stabilized, right? If you had a an elevated score, has it stayed stable with intervention? So I mean, there are a lot of things that we can do objectively that correlate with reduction in heart disease. But yeah, obviously we want zero outcomes, right? We want zero negative outcomes, but we won't know about that for 30, 40 years. So it's really hard to measure and prove value. So I think really what we we can also show, though, is that as along the way in improving objective uh, biomarkers, that we are also engaging people more consistently in their health through qualitative screening too, that they really believe that they are more invested in their health than they were before, whether that's nutritional changes, whether that's activity modification, whether that's mental health, sleep quality, like those are all things that are qualitative and subjective reporting, but that we can track and measure too, and we are tracking and measuring to see Wow, okay, so they've made behavioral modification, which is the cornerstone truly for long sustained success. And I mean like that to me is probably one of the most important things that we talk about is not just like be on a diet. Diets don't work, the studies show diets don't work. So what is it that you can do to make small incremental change that leads to sustained success? Because again, we're looking at your success over decades we want you to survive as long as possible and live as healthy as possible. So these are things that we want to make sure that you are able to carry forth for a long time,
2: even if you're never seeing us again. And, you know, also sleep is a huge thing. We start, we, start, we start a lot of our, like, you know, daily maps about sleep. Like, if you can fix somebody's sleep, their quality of life will change now. And they, like, will feel that. And we have a lot of different sleep specialists that we partner with. They'll change their lives just by giving, you know simple sleep interventions, and then they're sleeping well, so their mood is better, and then they're engaging in other activities. So we kind of like try to feedback their data to them, but also like kind of celebrate their successes and see like, look, you're starting to feel better. And again, that doesn't mean that we've altered the, the long process of atherosclerosis like permanently, but that gets them on the path to long-term
0: success. I think it's really powerful, Danny, because I think a lot of what we've seen through maybe people's growing distrust of the healthcare system and where they head otherwise is generally a place that they're trying to find ways to make them feel better. Um, and as is mentioned in the intro with things like supplements and vitamins and hiring personal trainers and going and finding naturopaths and having all the things that can kind of supplement a regular healthcare system. It's all in an
2: effort to both live longer and feel better. Julie, you had mentioned social determinants of health. And I just wanted to give a, you know, a plug for one of the programs that we're working on. We have, our prevention program has partnered with a food shelter in Oak Park, and they serve as, it's called Beyond Hunger, and they service, you know, a, like, I think it's like 13 zip codes of people with food, food insecurity, low socioeconomic status. And um, we, uh, we've we developed a prevention clinic that exists inside the the food shelter, so so basically, patient you know, clients come in to get their food, and we just say, "Hey, we're here. Do you want to get, you know, screening for cardiovascular disease?" So we do finger sticks on site and check their cholesterol and their sugar levels. we we have a whole team of nurses and and um, community health workers to help get them plugged into you know resources and, and get them plugged into uh, primary care doctors. We have health coaches and a really like, great interdisciplinary team that's trying to identify a very vulnerable population. It's these people that are at, at, in the lower, lower brackets of socioeconomic status, as well as like, particularly food insecurity leads to more risk for cardiovascular disease. So we're really trying to bring this to the community and, and like, make an impact out, like, basically outside of the failed system that's, that exists right now.
3: And if I could just add that, like, I think one of the elements here that we're really proud of and that we're trying to do even more partnership with is community, right? It's not just in in that setting, but it's also working with the library. It's working with local restaurants. It's working with local gyms, right? It's us really being part of the community and, and making community sustainable in their journey toward providing really high level access to healthy resources.
0: Yeah, I'd argue that you maybe change the appearance of what an actual doctor's office looks like. That a doctor's office doesn't mm-hmm. have to be in a medical building where people have appointments every 15 minutes. That a doctor's office could be at a food shelter or at a restaurant or at a clinic, you know, some sort of community based thing, you know. And so. How does the doctor fit into the community and how does the community relate with the doctor? So I think that's an awesome point and something that probably you know, could spawn a few more ideas for our podcast, to be honest. Get some more community people on here to talk about, which would be really, really cool. I want to get tangible for a second. What are some maybe two or three common things that you feel like people listening would benefit from hearing from you guys right now? And maybe, Danny, you can go first.
2: Um, I would say first thing i recommend is putting away your phone 30 minutes before bedtime and creating a ritual that gets your mind kind of unhooked from everything and allows you to like get ready for sleep if you don't if you're not sleeping properly you're not only is sleep restorative for all of your organ function and everything but it also when you're when you lack sleep, you it actually the studies have shown that you have less frontal cortical activity, so you're unable to modulate your behavior if you're sleep deprived, and so a lot of behavioral changes have to start with a good sleep, good sleep habits, good sleep hygiene, and a healthy like routine that really starts waking up feeling fresh. So that we oftentimes start with sleep, and that's I would say one of the most important things, particularly at a time where you're where you alluded to that were we're bragging about how stressed we are. We're on our phones until late at night answering emails. Like that, that's such an important habit to kick. And particularly if you have issues with sleep. So that's a great place to start. Max, what do you got for me?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I think really the, the most important piece of guidance I give people and the most consistent one is it doesn't have to be perfect, right? The CDC, pretty clearly says 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, you know, each week. So five 30 minute sessions, right? Everyone kind of, everyone in medicine has heard that. A lot of lay people have heard that, but no one knows what that actually means. Don't say I'm going to go run two miles if you're not walking 10 blocks, right? Like that's, don't set yourself up to fail because that's what's going to prevent you from engaging consistently in the behavior. So really it's like can you find five minutes to take a walk around your house or around the street? Or can you find a day a week that you can go on a trail or to your local pool? The other thing is, and I'm not kidding, how many times we have to tell people, please stop eating ice cream (laughs) at 10 p.m. Like it's unreal how many people think it's totally normal to have a scoop of ice cream while watching TV at nine or 10 p.m. That is a recommendation we make consistently. It doesn't always have to be ice cream. It can be chips. It can be anything that is processed should not be going in your body after 7 p.m. I mean, it should rarely be going in your body, but it definitely shouldn't be going in your body after 7 p.m. So Mm -hmm. that's a big piece of of our approach is just like,
0: what is a small change that you can make right now? And then we'll build on it. If somebody's listening to the episode right now, and I'd never heard of this, and I think to myself, God, I wish I had access to a model like this, and I don't live near Rush Oak Park. I live in, I don't know, Ohio. Like what, what would you recommend somebody do to try to encourage their healthcare system or the people around them or their community to start
2: growing models like this? There are, there are a lot of physicians that are board certified in lifestyle medicine. And so, you know, what I, what we've learned in the process of building this clinic is that there are a lot of physicians that think this way and are practicing somewhat in silos, but looking, trying to find patient, trying to find physicians that are board certified in lifestyle medicine, and and encouraging your family members to go to them, go to them yourself, and try to um, kind of engage that aspect of the healthcare system because it is out there.
3: And I mean, the other big piece of this, write your congressman mm-hmm. or congresswoman, and that makes a difference. But legislative advocacy is the future for success and. If you live in an area, it doesn't matter if you're in a populous city or a rural community, if you want your health to be taken seriously, it matters how you vote, right? Because unfortunately, doctors don't make policies. It's legislators who make policies, and we sort of have to live by their rules. And so who you vote for matters. So one of the things that you can do is know where... Your local politicians stand on healthcare issues. Know where they stand on prevention. Know where they stand on funding for projects like this, and then make it a make it a movement. If you have people standing together, raising a voice, and you write, you know, your elected representatives, that can lead to actual. I mean, we've seen it lead to actual change in, in bills at, at a state level, and even some of the federal funding for projects has gone up because of what people want.
0: And advocate for change. Danny and Max, can you just tell us where we can find more information on the clinic, find more information on you guys? Do you have stuff on social? Just where, where can people get more information if they want it?
2: Yeah. Um, you can just type in Rush Center for Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease into Google, and it's the first hit. You're going to see a, a photo of two just middle-aged balding Jews, and Like <laughs> <laughs> that's what we, you'll, you get what you see. <laughs> Never heard a better sales pitch than that. Our only fans page was, yeah, yeah our only fans page was shut down so oh um,
3: god yeah. they did
2: a they did a photo shoot of us for like 2 hours and the best photo they came up with was like us in the shadows looking away from the the camera oh, so god, that's funny But we can get
1: All right so uh, prevention is valuable and radical community building is key listen to your doctor friend <laughs>
0: The amazing music is credited to skill cell with pixabay licensure the podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only the contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guests to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.